think big, start small, scale fast. Starting this company, that was my mentality. You know, that just a little bit of wisdom has really kept me going. And that's why in just a little over two years, we've gotten to where we are. Even just the validation and the education that I got, being able to have the vernacular and same common knowledge and vocabulary as other MBAs is immeasurable in how fast that can help your business. But I still attribute my success and our success to Babson. Welcome to Babson Built, where we interview Babson founders and entrepreneurs, people who have tried, failed, and tried again. They're the change makers, the disruptors, the hustlers, and the builders. These are their stories. Today's Babson Built episode features Joel Cam, the founder and CEO of FlexiTail. FlexiTail is a modern mobile space for brands of all sizes looking to connect with their target customer base. Think food trucks, but for retail. Joel completed his MBA at Babson in 2012 and started FlexiTail in 2018. I am Vaidehi Baker, and I'm excited to have you on Babson Built, Joel. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So um, I think we can get right to it. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about FlexiTail. Um, what exactly is it and how did you come up with this concept? FlexiTail gives the power of space to anybody that wants to bring their brand to customers. So the idea of thinking of it as a food truck for retail really does kind of stem from that where the food truck helped restaurants bring their product to customers versus people having to come to locations that may be hard for people to come to or limited space. And retail is kind of in the same situation. So our concept is about 20 years behind food trucks, but we're still really solving for the same thing that food trucks did for restaurants. The way we came up with the idea was in the last 20 years, uh, my co-founder and I have been working in CPG retail and uh, marketing. And we noticed that really direct-to-consumer or any CPG company that needs to kind of do outreach didn't have a solution out there. Where other countries, you know, the cities and people and merchants, you know, their concept was the same as they were, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago where, you know, they went to where the customers were. And then as the customers moved, they moved with them. But in the U.S., we seem to have it the other way around. So we decided that, you know, there had to be in a better way. And so as we were traveling the country, you know, with companies like, you know, Gillette, P&G, and seeing how other people work and do retail, our kind of concept came to life that way. Because we knew that there was a need state there but there wasn't a great solution. And it kind of took us about 18 years to actually come up with a, what that concept looked like. But once, once we had it, we knew that we had something good. That sounds um, really interesting. And I love what you're doing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your footprint in the US? Are you only currently in Massachusetts or have you gone out as well? So we did start in Massachusetts. We knew that um, you know, this is a very capital intensive endeavor that we were going down. So we started in Massachusetts, but we did quickly kind of expand throughout New England with the help of the Bruins, being able to go to all of the states in New England, kind of show us, show our product off. And at the end of last year, we actually were able to deliver a unit down to Florida. 
this year, we actually delivered a unit to Silver Strings Maryland for DHL. And we're just finishing up a delivery uh, to Houston. So I've got two guys out there right now that are setting it up. And it's in Katie Mills, right outside of Houston, Texas. But by the end of this year, we will be in Canada. We'll have several units in Canada. We'll be in the Washington, D.C. area, Miami, Central Florida, possibly Santa Monica, and a couple other locations. Wow, that's that sounds great. Your expansion is pretty rapid, I must say. So you talked, you touched upon DHL a little and Gillette, but I also wanted to ask in general, what are the type of customers that you have? And on average, what is the renting period of a company? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's that's really almost like two two answers to that. Um, when we first started off, we our marketing strategy was just to get it out there and rent it. We weren't going to spend money on uh, marketing and, and media spend. So we decided that if we were going to try to get our brand out there, we were gonna, we'd rather give it out for free because we knew that this was such a different concept that we wanted people to try it. Right. So initially it was free. That first summer that we had a model out, we were just offering it to anybody who was even interested in using it to really get their input on it. Then we started to come up with many different pricing points, you know, all the way from $1,200 a day down to $150 a day. So it almost depends on length of use, where it is, how you're using it. But we've gotten now down to a point where it's a fairly standard $400 a day with a delivery fee. But if it was going to be at one location for a while, it was going to be, it could be down to $150 a day, making it really affordable for customers that, you know, are very seasonal and really are, you know, where we've kind of shifted because of COVID is we've seen a huge spike in design builds. And we knew that we would get to a design build kind of model within year three to year five, but we've actually almost switched a hundred percent to build design build model since we've opened after uh, the status reopened. You talk about design build. What does this mean? What is a design build model? So, you know, although the you know FlexiTail you know gives the power of space, what we're in the in the root of what we're doing is we want to become a mass manufacturer where the food truck industry we felt as though could have hit the market a lot faster if there was a company that could rapidly design and produce their food trucks. We knew that if we were going to be a real company and not a lifestyle brand that we had to really think of it as how do we scale this, not only as a, as a business model, but as a product. So we think of ourselves as a manufacturing company. And so we are uh, have a form factor that we can build and right now by hand in less than three weeks. And we're hoping to be able to buy, build these by hand in about five or six days. Oh, right, right. And um, you've been able to work with some big brands that you mentioned earlier. Can you walk us a little bit through um, how you managed to get big brands like these on board? How did you get Gillette on board? How did you get DHL on board? I think that would be interesting for the listeners to know. Yeah, you know, I would also throw in another one in there, uh, the Boston Bruins. I think these three stories are a great example of just getting yourself out there. With Gillette, even though my co-founder and I both worked at Gillette for a number of years, 
Um, Lucia worked in brand marketing and I worked in global retail design. We actually didn't use our network to get our foot in the door for have them using our, uh, our units. We found out through MIT and some other contacts that Gillette had hired an agency to help them really think about what is retail when customers are not looking at ads and how did they actually reach customers in this new kind of generation of, you know, ad-free living. And so we pitched to the agency and we got selected to then pitch to Gillette. The Boston Bruins was, was interesting because in the, when we had our first unit, we knew that we had to get this thing out there. So twice a week, we decided that we were going to hitch it onto our truck and just drive it around. And by just driving around, we would see a huge uptick in uh, people visiting our website. And when we were on the highway on the way to uh, meeting uh, an alderman from Swampscott, we got a call from a woman and she introduced herself as the VP of innovation for TD Garden. And she's, mm-hmm. she almost caused an accident because she drove by us, had to put on her brakes, slow down to find out what it, what we were doing and what the thing was driving down the road. And she Googled us and was calling us. She said she was actually literally right behind us on her way to TD Garden and said that she loved the whole idea of mobile and mobile retail and tiny house and being able to, you know, bring the brand of TD Garden of the Celtics and the Bruins to people. And she said that she's going to connect us with somebody at TD Garden that could use us immediately. So that was like a huge win right there. And then uh, DHL, you know, we, it was old school kind of marketing. We put it up, we put it out there to a bunch of publications, architecture magazines, retail magazines, and we got picked up by a retail, a commercial retail magazine down in Atlanta. And they were interested in this whole, the, our concept of, you know, this kind of mobile retail. So we had an article written and about three months later, I get a call from the VP of North America retail and said that she's been looking for something like this. And, you know, and there it was an article that was just brought to her desk and she knew that she had to reach out and we started the conversation. And uh, six months later we had a unit out and they're, they've just ordered uh, unit number eight and nine from us. That's great. I wanted to also ask a little bit about a competition. Is there a competition in the market and what differentiates FlexiTail? There's always a competition in any industry. You know, with ours, even though it is a very new market and a kind of a fragmented market, you know, there are established companies that are doing kind of mobile retail and companies that are doing just mobile spaces. So obviously, William Scottsman, a multi-billion dollar mobile office, uh, portable company down in Baltimore. Companies that also like uh, uh, Black Box, uh, they do a lot of temporary events-driven spaces. And there's, you know, there's several out in Denver and, and the LA area. But what really makes us different is we're looking at it really as with a manufacturing eye and scaling this so that we can produce these in you know, one a day, three or four or five a day if we get the big enough order, where those companies are really doing it as a one-off and marketing. Right. Um, so even though we are kind of somewhat producing the same thing, the way we're approaching it 
and the way their our ability to be able to deliver a complete unit as quickly as we can um, really different ourselves because I've worked with those companies when I was at Gillette and it would take six seven months to get something and the price was just astronomical and most small businesses and retailers could never afford something like that the fact that we can actually produce a true mobile unit that is off the line with a plug-and-play solution for somebody for $65,000, know, most these other big companies wouldn't even start a conversation with you. But we can actually, we can actually produce uh, one of those for you. And as a small brand, you can put your merchandise in and start selling. Right, right. And I'm sure with that, the business comes with a fair share of challenges as well, right? Starting from permits and regulations to the cost of hauling a trailer from place to place. So how exactly do you navigate through these kind of challenges? You know, that that was one of the first things on our board of things to solve was that permitting. Um, Mm -hmm. And we, and it's still a wild, wild west for that. Um, (laughs) When we first started, you know, we knocked on the doors of so many city halls trying to figure out, you know, what we could do, showing them our plans. The building inspectors didn't really care about us because they're like, oh, it's on wheels and it's under 200 square feet. So that was a that was a big win that we didn't have to kind of go through all of that for every city. But then it was every town, every city has a different rule. And sometimes, depending on how big the town is, a city whoever you talk to will have a different story behind it. So what we decided to do in the beginning, because it was taking up so much of our time, was we were just going to start picking off the lowest hanging fruit, which was private property. Uh, If they wanted us, if we could convince them that it made sense for them to uh, have us there and we could bring the brands, we were going to go after that first and then figure out the whole permitting thing. But now that we are partnering with, these uh, big brands, you know, we're really now kind of re-engaging in that process of finding permits. With DHL, the faster we can help them find permits and locations, the more they're going to order. So we've really made a considered effort to start helping them with that. So it's a lot of calls to city halls, town halls, even finding aldermen's contact, seeing, you know, getting them and talking to them, sending them photos, giving them as much as as possible and then you know trying to solve the uh, the permitting issues there uh what the one of the kind of bright sides of covid is a lot of these towns have actually reached out to us now because they know that they have to help these small businesses and they have to be outside and when they see our form factor and the ability for people to be able to kind of shop from outside and to experience things from the outside we've started to have more conversations that's been directed by town officials to say, to see how we could actually get our units and help small businesses. So that's a great segue into my next question, right? You talked about how COVID has probably helped you get an opportunity, you know, with your business, but we also know that COVID has massively impacted retail. So in what ways directly has uh, the pandemic affected your business? So, you know, like so many other companies out there, you know, we were shut down. Everything that we were doing, the whole, the rentals and the people that were thinking about buying and having the conversation just completely came to a screeching halt, just like everybody else. And so 
you know, we were really kind of thinking about, all right, what, you know, what do we do here? Like, so we went back to our kind of design and said, all right, how do we really frame up our, you know, the benefit of our design and how our people are using it? Kind of going back to our original framework and our benefit of the fact that we wanted retail to be an inside-outside experience, that it wasn't just an inside experience like brick-and-mortar retail, where our mobile structure allows for that interaction from people from the outside as well as people coming inside. So we reframed it as really the ability to have this kind of contactless kind of distance interaction with customers. And it really started to resonate with people because, you know, an employee or somebody could be inside and with this massive 10 foot, you know, bifolding window, people can be outside where they feel more comfortable and then really have that almost like that almost a contactless experience with them. And so people started to gravitate that and, and saw that that the design actually was the big benefit of ours and, and that's how they're using it. So, you know, DHL is kind of framing up as this contactless because people are want to stay outside and they can just walk right up to the window, you know, hand the pack or leave the package where the employee can, you know, grab it, weigh it, do what they need to do, and then they could do the whole transaction, you know, within staying six to eight feet apart. And people are are using that and their sales of in using our unit is far greater than they had expected. So they're really considering a success and that's how they're using it going forward. That's great. And I'm glad that you were able to adapt to the situation uh, pretty quickly. Um, so let's just come back to Babson now. Um, you graduated with an MBA degree in 2012. How do you believe an MBA helped you get where you are today? I would attribute the success and where we are really from the the program at Babson. You know, and I'm not saying that just because I graduated from Babson, um, <laughs> but just in, in looking back and, and having a coach through, throughout this whole process, you know, I look back at my experience there and I still recall and even recite some of the, the wisdom of Professor Stitt and Professor Ong. And even after eight years, I, it still resonates with me. And the, the, the first few weeks um, of the program with Professor Sit, you know, he kept telling us, you know, think big, start small, scale fast. And, you know, starting this company, like that was my mentality. And I would have, you know, that's just a little bit of wisdom has really kept me going. And that's why we're in, you know, in just a little over two years, we've gotten to where we are. And uh, even just the validation and the education that uh, I got in rooting in finance, being able to have the vernacular and same common knowledge and, and, and vocabulary as other MBAs, you know, with our mentors from different industries, just having that consist like having that knowledge and that the way the, the ability to be able to communicate with the other MBAs is immeasurable and in how fast that could help your business. And 
you know, my co-founder graduated from MIT, uh, Sloan, and mm-hmm. we, you know, we can, we, we're, we're, we're kind of talking the same language because we both have an MBA from two great institutions and, you know, but I still attribute my success and our success to Babson. And think big, start small, scale fast. I love that. I'm sure our listeners will be able to resonate with that a lot. So moving on to my next question, you worked in numerous different companies after your MBA, right? So just to name a few, there was P&G, Staples, New Balance. When did you realize it was a good time to start your own venture? You know, between all those companies, I started my own companies before. So between my stint from Gillette to P&G, I actually started my own design agency. Uh, so I always kind of had this, you know, small business entrepreneur, I uh, you know, wanted to solve it my way uh, kind of mentality. So, so it's always been kind of there in my mind. And that's kind of how I've kind of filled in my cracks of my resume. And People often say that once you start getting comfortable with a well-paid job, it becomes that much harder to get out of it and start a business of your own where your financial stability is, of course, unstable. So did you ever feel that? And how did you convince yourself to finally begin FlexiTail as well? You know, convincing myself was easy. Convincing my co-founder was definitely the harder part. <laughs> but my co-founder is uh, my significant other. And so, you know, they always tell you never start a company with your significant other. You know, I, I would say there are, you know, positive and successful stories of starting a business with your significant other, especially if you have somebody that challenges you. And my, my significant other challenges me every day, not only in business, but in life. But there, the challenge of, the financial challenge of starting a business, especially like ours, which is so capital intensive, was a little easier because you know between my times of you know being at Gillette and Staples and uh, New Balance, I actually developed homes kind of on the side. So every couple of years, I would find a, a house that I really loved or a multifamily, and I would design, develop, and I'd hire contractors to do the work, and then I would flip them. So that's how I actually was able to uh, save up. So I did that for about 12 years, sold, you know, north of $10 million of real estate uh, to be able to save up enough to be able to start this venture. And, you know, I wanted to just, you know, look at our bank account and said, okay, we've got this money. I want to use it all to start this crazy idea. And of course, my uh, significant other was like, no, I want a business plan and I want to see where the money's going to go. And what kind of runway do you have? And, you know, uh, start coming up with the materials lists and, you know, what do you need? And then you're going to take that and multiply by two and a half or three. And that's, you know, and that's probably what you're going to spend. Uh, and then I got to hold you to it. So that, that's really helped, uh, really having somebody that is one grounded and two, you know, I had a side hustle for a while to save up, to be able to do this because I knew that I wanted to do something. I just didn't right. know but I knew that I didn't want to run out of money while I was trying to do this venture. Right, right. That makes sense. And um, you bring up your significant other, who's also your co-founder. So can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of divide responsibilities and how you still work well together? 
You know, Lucia is the total opposite of me in the best way. And where, where we share the, the common thread of an MBA and we can talk about those things, my head's kind of in the sky and, you know, I, I want to just build and design and get it out there. And uh, she's much more pragmatic. You know, she, her background is in brand marketing at P&G. So, you know, she's used to being kind of more of a general manager in that sense. Mm-hmm. So she really kind of helped uh, more of the CMO, kind of the, the, the operations part of it in the business part. And I really kind of ran with the, the product, the design, execution. And that was our, our really our big divide right there. And so that, that helped because we were kind of, we were both working, you know, as a company, a right brain and a left brain, um, instead of both of us, you know, having our heads in the sky or both of us just looking at numbers and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of the non-sexy part of the business, we were able to kind of split those up and then still meet in the middle to be able to discuss it and plan forward. Yeah, I think that's really important to have complementary skills to make sure you're not treading on each other's toes. So it's great that you guys have that with each other. I think with this, we've come to the end of our episode. So I just want to thank you very much for being here and doing this with us today, Joel. I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Baps and Built. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us since that really helps others discover the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Babson Eship and on Facebook as Babson Entrepreneurs. We're grateful to the Babson College student and alumni founders who participate in this podcast. These are their stories. Join us again for more Babson Builds.